This podcast was sponsored by our Leadership Circle members, Senior Fellows Randy Pond and Lisa Sonsini, and our 2016 class matchers, Darla Anderson of Class 24, Chuck Getchke of Class 10, Dottie Hayes of Class 19, and Steve Smith of Class 14. We thank them for their support. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Jane Way Skillern is an adjunct associate professor at the Center for Nonprofit and Public Leadership at the University of California, Berkeley. She served on the faculty at both Harvard and London Business Schools and Stanford Graduate School of Business. For the past 15 years, Jane has been studying nonprofit networks. Her research examines how leaders that focus less on building their own institutions and instead invest to build strategic networks beyond their organizational boundaries could achieve dramatic gains and mission impact with the same or fewer resources. Let's listen. Jane, we're so glad to have you today. You know, I'm just thrilled that we were able to bring you on to uh, our faculty at ALF. I really enjoyed your presentation at Class 31 a few weeks back. And, you know, your findings around applied leadership um, and network leadership really mirror what we're trying to instill, right? And in our fellows program and certainly what we've experienced over the years since mm-hmm. ALF has been around and watching these these networks sort of evolve and and cross-pollinate and make change. So I wanna, I wanna dig in a little bit into the difference between a servant leadership model and network leadership model. And I just wanna quote somebody, you know, the person who really coined uh, servant leadership, which is Robert Greenleaf in the, in the 70s. So the definition, is a servant leader focuses primarily on the growth and well-being of people and the communities to which they belong. While traditional leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercise of power by one at the top of the pyramid, servant leadership is different. Servant leader shares power, puts the needs of others first, and helps people develop and perform as highly as possible. So how closely is that to, how do you define network leadership? Yes, well, I would say they're very much cut from the same cloth, that they are um, very closely related. And I would say maybe an extension of network leadership is that it's really with an eye toward social change, at least the way that I've defined it and what I've been studying. Um, So a lot of the thinking of how one leads as a servant leader is applied to social impact work and really thinking about how do we not only survey beneficiaries, but listen and engage and design solutions and develop solutions and uh, identify what's working in communities, from communities, and bring up kind of bottoms-up solutions rather than kind of we've got the best expertise and the best analysis and the answers from our institution, and it's simply a matter of getting our product or service or program out there. So the network leadership model really, I'd say, is an extension of that servant leadership model is applied to social impact work in the nonprofit sector specifically is where I've looked at it. But I, I've found in speaking with many other people who work in the government sector and even in the business sector that these principles apply broadly wherever there are people and organizations working together. And I love just the simplistic way that you frame these principles. Um, you know, it's about mission, not organization, trust, not control, humility, not brand. And then the fourth one, which I really appreciate, you're a node, not a hub. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that? And Sure. And, um, so um, I guess some of it, and I, I, sh- I always say this, is that these principles emerged from studying 
a series of case studies across different contexts amongst different organizations, whether it was large organizations, foundations, um, small nonprofits, grassroots organizations across a range of sectors from environmental conservation, climate change, education reform, um, uh, excuse me, microfinance, all all issue areas, international development, and across all of these case examples emerged a pattern of behavior and leading and sets of norms and a culture across the network of how people and organizations were interacting with each other and engaging with each other. The reason why I framed it as kind of mission before organization, trust not control, was because the reality was many of the success factors that I saw in these case examples, across these case examples, were very counter to what was typically being sought after or rewarded or incentivized in the social sector, in the philanthropic space in particular. And I thought in order to engage and reach the audience that I'm trying to reach, which is philanthropists, board members, uh, nonprofit executive directors, teams, and staff and organizations working at the community level, that it needed to be something that they understood rather than just this pie in the sky, here's this great model, everybody should behave in this way, and by the way, we should just have world peace at the same time. It was right. really more, <laughs> what are we doing, and what are the organizations that succeed in a very um, leveraged and impactful and sustainable way, what are they doing? And that contrast, I think, helps to draw out how we all need to change our behavior. It's not just the other that needs to improve their behavior or be better at collaborating. Everybody needs to reflect on their own um, behavior on how they can improve the p- potential of their collaborations. What you're describing, too, is I was really deeply thinking about that in my nonprofit work and boards I've been on and you know different sectors, yes. et cetera, the last couple decades. Um, you know, this is the opposite of how our the ecosystem in which these organizations have to work are set up, right? Mm-hmm. That's this is not um, it's not supported uh, at this point. But nonprofits, impact groups fight for you know their brand. They're generally on a very low budget. They need to fight for foundation dollars. They need to raise up their organizations as the one. So you know what I really appreciated that you did is that helped me deeply understand this approach is you had these two slides up at our class and one was sort of before an organization you know in the in the sort of current mindset of we are the center of the universe and everything is around us in the organizations in the middle and there's all these other players on the outside connected and the after slide is the missions at the center right and there's a lot of players on the outside including the organization in question right that we're talking about so i appreciate that that framing. How do nonprofits, how do folks react when you talk yes. about this? I think that there's often kind of a, a level of, wow, I just never thought about it this way. Um, and I should add that that slide, it wasn't um, my own creation, but rather it was a colleague, my former student, a mid-career student who had been working within Habitat for Humanity at the executive level at headquarters. and. He had always worked in this network leadership way, kind of leading from behind as a servant leader, supporting the mission above all else. And he was trying to help inculcate that thinking amongst his staff internally. And so he was trying to illustrate, this is where we are. We are 
partnering with many organizations, that's all well and good, but we are still kind of thinking of ourselves as the end-all, be-all solution. And the only way we will ever get to scale of impact, to sustainability of impact, and to get leverage on our very limited resources, even though we happen to be the largest housing nonprofit in the world, we will have to move in this direction of a networked nonprofit where we are one of many. And it is only the various players that exist in our ecosystem that we work together that we can build this beautiful mosaic to actually get to the scale of impact that we're talking about. So it's often surprise, but at the same time, I think there are many people who already work in this way. And for them, it's more validation and relief to say, I've been working this way my entire career. People don't come to the nonprofit sector uh, for the for the salary or the, the status necessarily. They come because they want to make social change. They want to contribute in positive ways in their communities. And there are many people, as I've seen in my own work, that work in this way already. They did not learn it from me. They work in, in almost an intuitive way that this is the best path to getting to the, the impact that I want. And there's obvious reasons for that, that you get um, leverage on your resources, you get better ideas when you've got um, different expertise um, coming to the table, you get a pooling of resources, you get an efficiency because you don't have so many redundancies and um, gaps in services. So there are many obvious reasons for doing it. I think one of the big reasons why we aren't doing this more in the sector, that it's still more of an outlier, is that the uh, philanthropic sector has really grown up around institutions right and right. that institutional focus leads us to focus on well if we succeed as an organization then of course we're going to get more scale on our mission impact but I found that that isn't necessarily the case that in fact investing in others supporting your peers giving up control giving up or sharing recognition very freely making your peers look good is actually a much more powerful and sustainable way to get to scale of impact than trying to go it alone and being the hero and the lone hero, because we know that's not enough. You know, it's, it occurs to me now, I mean, it's sort of in line with this shift that I've noticed in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of being a sharing society. I mean, mm-hmm. from uh, there's a great example of when it was Microsoft decided, no, we're not going to hold on to this this um, Xbox, I think it was software, we're going to give it away. People are hacking in. People are going to find it. We're going to give it away. Yes. And just this, this sharing across social media and that phenomenon and, and the DIY kind of, we want to get in and do it, our, you know, be a part of the solution and get our hands dirty and think of things differently. Yes. Um, it just mirrors that sort of culture and feeling. Yes, definitely. I think it does. And I would argue that in the social sphere, when we're talking about social impact work, compared to, say, some private sector companies that are working in this way, the opportunity and potential is probably exponentially greater in social impact work. Because a for-profit organization, a private sector organization, their mandate is to generate shareholder wealth that needs to be captured by the organization. When we're talking about social change, we are creating social value that does not necessarily need to be owned or captured within organizational boundaries. And if anything, if people can take our good ideas and replicate without us and go on and spread the idea globally without any involvement from us, without any direct control from us, all the better because that's getting to the change that we want without us having to get our fingers in the pie and really, in many cases, cause trouble or or hinder the development and adoption that might happen. 
that organic process, right? right? Right. Let's talk about a real example of this inaction that you studied, and I'm sure you've, you know, in your is it 15 years, I believe, of really yeah. looking at this and studying examples. Uh, you shared with with our class, you know, this uh, the Habitat for Humanity example in Egypt. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Sure. So this case was brought to me by another former student of mine. He had heard about some of the research that I was doing looking at trust-based relationships and a uh, set of actors, leaders of nonprofits, who were very deliberate about achieving their organizational mission by investing and working alongside peers, and in some cases investing even in their former competitors to get to scale of impact. And um, he would said, oh, I read about some of your research, and let me introduce to you a case that might actually illustrate this, because I've just lived it firsthand in the Middle East. He, he was the former regional director of Habitat for Humanity in the Middle East and North Africa. And Habitat Egypt was one of the cases or countries that he was overseeing. And if anything, he spent the bulk of his time protecting and sheltering the National Director of Habitat Egypt, who had a very clear vision that he was going to build a network of existing indigenous community-based organizations who were already doing great work on community development and help build the capacity, the local capacity, to deliver a housing program and build that into existing organizations and scale up that program um, nationally. So um, that program became the most successful um, organization on the measures of kind of the speed of um, their growth rates. They went from building 20 to 30 houses per year to 600 houses in the first year to over 1,000 houses, and now they build over 2,000 houses per year. And they do it on a shoestring budget. They, their staff has increased from one paid staff member to nine. They um, really invest heavily in their local partners with an eye toward actually exiting from the most successful partners because their partners can actually run the programs completely on their own. They don't require an ongoing subsidy. They can attract their own funding. So this model um, led Habitat Egypt to become one of the most successful global programs, excuse me, national programs globally by cumulative house numbers, even though Habitat Egypt had counterparts that had been operating for decades longer than they had. And um, Habitat, excuse me, David Haskell, who was working at Habitat at the regional level, spent a lot of time protecting the national director of Habitat Egypt from some of the, the typical organizational pressures of what about accountability and control and the contracts, the formal contracts that we make everybody sign, make sure that no um, mismanagement of the funds is going to happen. Um, and they kind of flew under the radar screen for a while and ultimately achieved pretty phenomenal results that were um, recognized by headquarters as, as really valuable. But at the same time, it was a really difficult uphill battle all along the way to get the space, the permission to take risks. And what they found was by investing their resources, by investing their technical expertise and capacity on the housing component, they gave up a lot of the control that they typically would usually have um, with their affiliates and actually got far superior results. They had repayment rates on the order of 99.9% when wow. typical habitat models outside of the U.S. and Canada, um, when it's more of a top-down controlled model, 
um, their repayment rates hover around 75% on average. So they got superior repayment rates, fastest ramp up on house numbers. Typical Habitat country program is, is a startup. It takes years to get to double digit house numbers, years. And they got to 600 in the first year. So again, by letting go of control and investing resources, and then sharing and giving the recognition to their partners as much as to themselves, that really made their partners equally, if not more, invested in the success of the work of the network. And so it was that model that really allowed it to flourish. And I think that really caught my eye as a researcher. This is a phenomenal example because you have a controlled experiment. You have what typically happens in a very controlled environment. And you can get impact, positive impact, but it's more incremental if you really want large-scale kind of explosive change and growth, oftentimes if you let go with trusted partners, and that was very, very important, is finding the right partners and doing the due diligence up front. They would spend months, sometimes up to a year, vetting partners. It's key. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, just to make sure that you've trust. got those relationships built. And, you know, that, that is such a perfect before and after example, right? Yes. Um, I agree with you. And you know, the concept of sunsetting, I, you know, sunsetting our organization or sunsetting this relationship or this project yes. or this piece of our business takes so much courage, I think, and um, uh, vision, right, of, of what, yes. why, why are we here? <laughs> you know, what is the real mission of this organization? And, you know, nonprofits talk about mission creep and, you know, chasing after dollars to make sure we can pay that overhead and be sustainable. Again, part of it is living within the system that exists and trying to make it. Yes. Um, you know, people go in with a good heart, but you get caught up in the, the um, uh, in the red tape and in, in those, those opportunities that mm-hmm. seem tempting at the time that end up being a real distraction sometimes. Um, in hearing you describe this, the, tell this story, I mean, I just think it takes so much courage for a leader, courage for um, partners as well. But I think it really, as you're describing, it starts with the, the person who says, no, we're, we're going to go this way. We're yes. going to take this path. Can you describe to me, you know, what are the qualities that you find in these leaders of organizations that choose to go in a more network leadership yes. uh, path? What's the common the common thread? Yes, I think if anything, they are as visionary and as ambitious as they come. That they have such big goals and dreams for achieving a mission that they know at the very outset there is no way that they're ever going to achieve it on their own or their organization working on their own. So it, if anything, it's liberating that you can actually pursue a big dream and a big goal. Um, the other is that they are exceedingly humble, and they know that they may bring critical resources, critical skills, expertise, but they are never the smartest person in the room. In fact, there is never a single smartest person in the room. It's going to take a village. It's going to take all of these various players, and some people may not even be the usual people or organizations that you would think of that need to be at the table in order to solve a problem. So that um, humility is really key because they are very adaptable and open to other people's ideas. And again, it's not, I've done the best analysis, I've got the best credentials, I know what we need to do, and it's a matter of execution. Now, there might be some issues where it's more of a technical problem, that it's, we know that a certain vaccination is a cure for a particular disease, and we need to get it out to everybody in order to eradicate this disease. But there are other issues, many uh, social change issues that we're working on, that require behavior change, community involvement, engagement, and 
buy-in to really get to large-scale change, that that is maybe a little bit more subtle where you need to have the trust and the engagement and commitment from people at all levels. And so that humility really stands out to me as, again, regardless of how successful and accomplished these leaders are, they are, it's never been about themselves. They are driven by the mission above all else. And in fact, that I think for them is the biggest reward. Even if they don't necessarily get the organizational promotion or the accolades of you've grown the budget and look at all of the accomplishments you've done on building the brand, but they can go to sleep at night peacefully knowing that they have dedicated their life's work or the, their day's work to really advancing the mission even if it didn't lead to immediate gains for themselves or their organization. So pure authenticity and leaving the ego at the door. And I mean, those are, yes. those are hard, hard qualities yes. to find sometimes and, in folks that are, you know, leading huge social change efforts. Indeed. And I think maybe one thing that strikes me is that they're very secure in themselves and in the vision of what they're trying to accomplish. So although there may be pressures and even doubters as to their approach, they don't have any insecurities of, you know, I've got to prove myself. I've got to throw my weight around to justify my existence or the work that I'm doing. It's very clear and aligned with what they're trying to achieve from a mission perspective. So in some ways, you kind of leave a lot of that kind of personal baggage or they just don't seem to exhibit that in their kind of day-to-day interaction with other people. And so they treat people with respect, and they are often treated in turn with respect. And they are very high integrity, very trustworthy, very uh, authentic individuals, very mindful and aware of how they are being perceived and how they're engaging with other people, that even if they might have an opportunity to have the upper hand, say, for example, if they're bringing the bulk of the resources to a partnership, they don't necessarily act like they're doing that, that they don't need to exert themselves in order to feel good about their work. They know that if they invest in their partners and equals and treat other people very much according to the golden rule, they're going to get that impact far more likely, much more likely in in, in those circumstances than if they're kind of working from a top down, you know, I'm the boss, I'm bringing the money, you have to do the dance as I, as I ask, um, because I think they don't have any doubt that this is the way forward. That sounds great, right? And living in, I think, the, um, the framework that we do around funding, uh, I've certainly been a part of organizations that have been, uh, depend a lot on government funding and depend a lot on having to, uh, you know, go after those RFPs that are issued at the city, county, state, federal level. And it is set up to really pit these organizations against each other, which of course causes this domino effect of we gotta raise our brand, we have to be the best, we have to have the best fundraiser, we have to have the best message about who we are and shine as an organization. So I guess my question to you is, I mean, have you seen any any evidence that government entities are open to, hey, we need to shift our thinking mm-hmm. in terms of um, not putting out an RFP for a problem we think needs to be solved, but actually sitting down with service providers and saying, what do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, How do we help you be successful? Yes. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen specific examples of that, though. Recently, I just had um, one of my first invitations from a government agency that was beginning to think in this way 
uh, it was this government sustainability office locally here in the Bay Area where they were thinking about in order to get to some of our goals as a sustainability office at the government level, we have to begin thinking and working this way. We already are inclined to working in this way by the nature of the problems we're trying to solve, whether it's housing issues or um, carbon emissions or um, any range of, of issues that fall within their office's um, governance, that the only way to get there is to work as a peer amongst other entities, whether it's nonprofits, whether it's private sector organizations. Yeah. So I think that, again, our government institutions have grown up with an institutional focus. And I think um, it, it's it, not necessary at all to say that our government institutions need reform and um, can improve in dramatic ways um, mm -hmm. the way that they are um, getting things done. and. I think this is a huge untapped opportunity if we can apply this way of thinking, not just in the nonprofit sector where I happen to have done the bulk of my research, but to apply it in, in the government sector as well. Because again, the government sector is looking for generating social value. And we're not going to get there by institution by institution fighting it, fighting tooth and nail to try to get there and Being succeed. Being in silos. Yeah. Right not going to work. Core to our fellows program is diversity. Diversity, mm -hmm. ethnic diversity, political diversity, sector diversity, and to see eyes opening mm -hmm. as, you know, folks in this ALF container really start to deeply understand each other. You know, corporate starts to go, oh, that's life in nonprofit land. Mm -hmm. I had a different perspective, right? Or this is life in, um, you know, at City Hall or at the, you know, in Congress. And you see this deep understanding happening. And then, you know, what I like to say to folks is, when they asked me, what's the impact of ALF? I said, you know, wait wait for a year or two after class ends. You're going to start seeing the real impact because, you know, those wheels start turning, right? And the key to that is just breaking down those silos. Mm -hmm. um, we, as one sector or one organization, can't solve something like homelessness. We cannot. We mm -hmm. must work together. And, you know, one model that uh, that is certainly being implemented now that's fairly new in the last 10 years is this collective idea of collective impact, right? Commitment of a group of actors from different sectors you know, with a common agenda um, for solving a specific social problem. Uh, it's a very structured sort of form of collaboration. Can you talk a little bit about what you've witnessed around collective impact and how you feel that differs from this approach? Sure. So uh, the collective impact approach comes out of a consulting group foundation strategy group that I think very highly of. Um, they are advocating for these large systems level approaches to social change, and I think that's all a step in the right direction. They focused initially on more structural elements of what systems do you need to have in place, what organizational leadership, what performance metrics you need to have in order to have a successful and thriving collaborative. They often convene tens of organizations across um, diverse issue areas to um, discuss and explore potential strategies and tactics for addressing social issues. I'd say my one critique of it is maybe more that it's still a very corporate or top-down model of collaboration that it's first creating collaborations that are new um, without regard necessarily to what existing networks or relationships or collaboratives already exist in communities and in fact are maybe 
or have the potential to thrive were they not starved for resources or support or space to experiment and take risks and learn from those experiences and continue to improve. It's kind of a, uh, let's create more partnerships. And again, I think that's a step in the right direction, but my bias really is toward what's already existing in communities, what we can invest in that's kind of low-hanging fruit because these organizations, these leaders, are already working in this way, but they often are overstretched, under-resourced, under a huge strain, trying to check all the organizational level metrics and performance standards. At the same time, they're trying to invest heavily in their networks in order to get the work done. So they're almost held to a set of two standards when um, organizations that are funding um, these types of collaboratives they're still saying, well, we want more collaboration. Everybody needs to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And we're not even bothering to look for good behavior. And I know that it exists because as a researcher, I've built my entire career studying existing networks that were succeeding. And the fact that I was able to find them, I often refer to them as a needle in a haystack because <laughs> they are difficult to find. These successful collaboratives, these successful networks, whatever your favorite term is, I'm actually not that particular about the language that people use. I'm most focused on the way in which people are working. And that's how I define network uh, leadership. And that's where those four principles come from. Um, So I would say I focus more on the grassroots, the organic collaborations, whether they're just bilateral or multilateral partnerships. They don't have to necessarily involve the entire ecosystem at the outset. But if you have clusters of networks working effectively and they have deep trust and they're solving problems effectively together, they can eventually start to connect with each other and build toward a global solution that wasn't orchestrated from the top down, that wasn't forced from the top down with a big pot of money or the promise of money or even just the fact that you have to show up at these meetings in order to remain credible, otherwise you're kind of left out in the cold because you're not playing nicely and not attending all of these convenings. But the truth is many of the people who work in this networked way, they aren't necessarily going to be the ones who are invited to these meetings and be at the table, or they don't necessarily even want to spend their time at these meetings because they're so busy doing the work. They're under the radar. Yes. Yeah. And they're not self-promoting. They're not building a brand. They don't lead gigantic organizations. They don't have big budgets at their disposal. They're leading the work often from behind, supporting peers and partners, and often building capacity outside their own organizations very deliberately to solve the problem. I'd say our typical methods in philanthropy of finding grantees where you issue a competitive RFP, that's not necessarily getting the right people at the table at all. In fact, almost the opposite. From the Tao Te Ching, the highest type of ruler is one of whose existence the people are barely aware. Next comes one they love and praise. Next comes one whom they fear. Next comes one whom they despise and defy. American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to ALF's The Dialogue on iTunes.